friends and welcome to worship at lakeside it's hard to believe but this is the 11th week that we have done church uh, distancing and uh, if you had told me uh, all those weeks back when we were returning from mission trip to belize that we would not be meeting together for 11 weeks i don't know what i would think uh, but the good news is this is that we have a plan to worship together in person next week and uh, jim's going to tell you a little bit about that later on but just to say at 10 o'clock in the morning, next Sunday, May 31st, we will gather out in the lawn and in the parking lot uh, to be together, uh, socially distant still, uh, but together uh, singing and, and listening to the Word of God. And so I, I want to call you to worship this morning, one last time gathered. Uh, we may have to do it again this way if, if weather's in, inclement, but, but let's hope we can be together outdoors really soon. Uh, join me as we're called to worship through the Apostles' Creed. Will you say it with me from home? Christian, what do you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Also, good morning, Lakeside. Um, I know God is keeping you well on this Memorial Day uh, weekend. Uh, it is exciting. We're going to get to, uh, we're going to get to worship together uh, next week. It is outdoors. Uh, now note that um, our, our, our paramount um, concern right now is that um, you be safe, and, and we're doing everything that we can do to make that happen. Uh, we have a number of options. Uh, when you come, you, we have a lot of beautiful new um, uh, picnic tables. You can sit at some of those picnic tables. Some of the families that might be even already socially interacting can maybe sit together. You can bring chairs and you can, weather permitting, um, you can even bring a blanket or something and put that on the ground. Um, but also that you're not comfortable with that. Um, the parking lot will be open for people to park in. Um, we'll have one part of the parking lot for people who are parking and then coming to the tables, but there'll be a nice big place there where people can just drive up and stay in, their, uh, in the cars. And then you'll be able to turn to a certain channel on your FM radio and you'll be able to hear um, uh, everything that is going on. You can also feel free to just stay at home. 
um, and uh, we will live stream it at that hour. Ten, it was a 10 o'clock hour. We've got some guys working really hard to try to make all these things, uh, those things come together. And then even after that, if you want to wait till later in the day, it will be videotaped at that time, and so you can watch it um, at your leisure and, and enjoy the worship service there. Uh, the important thing is do what is really best for you and your family. And if you have any questions about it, please feel free to contact me or Tyson or just uh, Naomi uh, in, in the office, and, and we'll get that information uh, back to you. Um, also, I do want to say um, uh, thank you very much uh, for all those that have been able to c continue giving in their tithes and their offerings. We recognize things have changed so much. Um, that's it. It's changed. So not all things are the same, and that's may not be. Uh, some people may not be able to do that. Um, but for those that have, either through donating on the website, sending in the mail, or even coming by, sending it by mail, or even coming by the church, we very much appreciate it. Uh, it helps us to continue the ministry that we're doing. We have not had to back off on any of our missionaries. You know, we're already getting letters from them, of other churches that are having to do that. Um, we've not had to do any of that so far. And so um, we really do thank you very much for um, your faith and faithfulness um, in, in that. Well, Micah the prophet says, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall sit, every man under his vine and under his fig tree. And no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken." For all the peoples walk each in the name of its God. But we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, by grace and through faith, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Strengthen us in all circumstances to hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For you have promised and you are faithful. Even as we study the miracles of our Lord, give us eyes to see the saving mercy to which your signs point. Let us enter this salvation that was declared first by your Christ and has been attested to us by those who heard, while you also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, all according to your goodwill. Give us the gift of repentance. For our sins of deed, word, and thought overwhelm us and grieve your righteous spirit. It is our great trust and joy that Christ died for sinners and we are chief among them. This is beyond our understanding, the riches of the freedom of your grace. Give us mercy to comprehend something of the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. We dare even ask it that we be filled with the fullness of Christ. Lord, give us faith to know our offenses to your holy law, 
the merciful way of confession and cleansing, the joyful gratitude of forgiveness, and the diligent obedience of an intentional discipleship. And Father, we ask on this day, this Memorial Day weekend, that indeed we be thankful for what has happened in our nation, that we appreciate um, the blood shed for the freedoms that we have, and that we in our values and in our goals and purposes and ultimately in our faith walk in a manner worthy of that shed blood. All these things we ask in the name of Jesus, he who became our wisdom from God, praying, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. In church, the psalmist writes, Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Church, let's prepare ourselves to hear the word of the Lord and live by faith. It is well, it is. 
Good morning, friends. You are certainly at the right place at the right time to hear the gospel proclaimed. And I'm, I'm so glad that you could join with us today as we gather around uh, the Word of God. We're going to be looking at the sixth miracle of Jesus that we find in the Gospel of John. And we call those miracle signs. We call the first half of the, uh, the Gospel of John the Book of Signs because it contains all these signs that point to Jesus being the Messiah. The miracles of Jesus are, are basically signs that point to the fact that Jesus is who he says he is. Uh, pastor, teacher John MacArthur says that uh, these miracles are actually God attesting to Jesus as the Messiah by miracle. So, so that whenever Jesus is able to do these miraculous signs, it's actually God giving testimony to the fact that Jesus is who he says he is. It's almost as if God is saying, this is my son. Look at my glorious power at work within him. There's a specific reason that the miracles are happening here. They happen to testify to the world that Jesus is the Christ. And so, I mean, here's the deal. As much as you and I want miracles in our daily lives, to be honest, miracles, true miracles, they're rare. There's a part of us that says, you know, oh, I, I've seen miracles. Uh, I've seen people who have a, a terminal diagnosis and they return to the doctor and the doctor gives them a clean bill of health. Others might say, uh, I've seen my brother come to faith in Jesus and, and if you knew him beforehand, you would realize that this is a true miracle. And, and that's beautiful. There, there's no doubting that. And there's, there's no doubting that, that God was at work in both these situations. But I'm not sure that, that that's categorically a miracle. And we can argue semantics because there, there is something miraculous about any of us coming to faith in Jesus, any sinners receiving the grace of Jesus. But when was the last time you saw someone walk on water? And if you tell me that your friend knows a guy who, who has done it, I'm probably not going to believe you, right? I mean, that's, that's the deal. If someone tells you, listen, my friend once walked on water, it was a miracle. We're probably not going to believe him. Why? Because it is not just improbable. It's impossible. That's what makes it, it truly a miracle, is that Jesus could do the things that weren't just improbable. They were impossible, it's highly improbable that, that sick people suddenly get better, but it happens all the time. Yes, I mean, a sovereign God's behind those healings too, but there was always a probability of, of a chance that those people would recover. But when was the last time you saw someone change 
water into wine simply by using their will. It's impossible. That's what makes it a miracle. That's what makes it a testimony from God about Jesus. The fact that Jesus can do these things that, that are impossible. And if you tell me that you have this friend who was blind from birth and he went to see some evangelist in Pearl and that evangelist spit in his eyes and now he can see, I'm not going to believe you. And it's not because I doubt the power of God. I, I can promise you that I don't doubt the power of God. It's because human hearts are sinful and we like to lie and exaggerate and miracles by their very definition are impossible. And let's just say they're very rare. I, I have zero doubt that God can do miracles, but there's always a guy wearing a, a shiny sports coat claiming to have the power of God and claiming to do miraculous works every Sunday, but we know that miracles are rare. People read their Bibles and, and they hear about miracles, and I think that people actually sometimes begin to believe that in biblical times, Miracles must have happened all the time. But friends, even in the Bible, miracles were rare. That's why they're, they're recorded. That's why someone said, this is worth writing down in the Word of God. This becomes the Word of God. Because God has done something amazing, and God has done something uh, impossible. Yes, there were miracles in the Old Testament. Uh, you, you, have, you have a season there where there's a lot of miracles in the life and are circling around Moses' time. And then after that, miracles become rare again. We don't see many of them. And then you get to this season around Elijah and Elisha. And, and once again, miracles are happening all the time. God has a lot of signs that point to something is happening here. And then we have a season where miracles become rare again. And then we get to the time of Jesus and his disciples. And all of a sudden, we begin seeing miracles happening consistently from Jesus and the disciples. And before Jesus had started his public ministry, it had been four centuries since the last prophet of the Lord had been there. There, there were four centuries between Malachi and John the Baptist. So there's probably another season where miracles were very, very rare. So, so here's what I'm saying, okay? I'm trying to say this. Jesus is unique. God's miracles uniquely testify to the divinity of Jesus. Today I want to read with you from the ninth chapter of the gospel. John, that's where we're going to be, John chapter 9. Uh, we're going to talk about Jesus healing a man who had been born blind. And I want, to, I want to worship Jesus. I want to celebrate Jesus and what he does. So let's read together from uh, John 9, 1 through 7. But before we do, let's take a moment to stop, breathe, and be still and pray. So, so pray with me. Father, we thank you that you have given testimony to Jesus by these miraculous deeds. And today we read of the sixth one. God, may we be mystified by it. May we be led to worship because of it. May your spirit help us as we read your word. We pray this in the name of Jesus. And the church said, amen. Okay, let's read together. Uh, John chapter 9, beginning in the first verse. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. 
We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Shalom, which means sent. So he went and washed, and he came back seeing. Church, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. And this is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. So we just read from John chapter 9. And uh, John chapter 8 and 9, they kind of belong together. And, and we're going to really look, take a little bit of a look at even John chapter 7 because we really need to go back and we need to grab context to what's happening here. We, we, we've skipped a couple chapters in our reading of the miracles. And so I want to take us back just a little bit. In chapter 7, Jesus uh, travels to Jerusalem for the Feast of Booths. And as we've said in previous weeks, Jesus always seems to, uh, in, in the Gospel of John, travel to Jerusalem to be present for the feast. Uh, and, and here's what the Feast of Booths would look like. It would be kind of like a, a giant tailgating weekend. Everyone would go outside and they would sleep in these booths or these tents. They would be under the stars and under the sun. And the people of Israel would remember how they used to be a nomadic people and how they used to follow the pillar of fire through the wilderness as God would prove faithful to lead them to the promised land. And it's in the middle of that Feast of Booths where Jesus returns to Jerusalem. He kind of comes back for that. However, if you'll remember back the last time that Jesus was in Jerusalem, he, uh, he healed that paralytic man on the Sabbath. And as a result, uh, the Pharisees and the officials there want to kill Jesus. Uh, so it was super dangerous for Jesus to return to Jerusalem. But here in chapter 7, when Jesus shows back up in the Feast of Booths, uh, he isn't even trying to keep a low profile at all. Uh, I want to read together John 7, 14. We'll put that up for you. It says this, that about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and he began teaching. So, so right in the middle of all this, Jesus isn't trying to keep a low profile. He gets up. He goes to the temple and he begins te teaching. And Jesus' argument was, was basically this. We'll read John 7, 19. It says this, uh, Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keep the law? Uh, why do you seek to kill me? And so, so Jesus, is, he's not soft preaching. He's, he's going right at them addressing the fact that, that their standards kind of are hypocritical. Uh, Jesus' argument was basically, listen, he circumcised people on the Sabbath and no one's upset why are you upset with me when I, when I heal a man's entire body? Okay, that, that's what's happened. So, so he kind of comes in there and just addresses their anger at him. He, he addresses the issues at hand. Fast forward to chapter 8 a little bit with me. And it's still that festival of booths. They're still out in their booths. But now they've come to a special part of the festival of booths. It's called the illumination of the temple. And we've talked about this before. The illumination of the temple was a ceremony in which they would hoist these four great chandeliers or lamps into the sky, and uh, it would be in front of the temple treasury, and it kind of symbolized that pillar of fire that, that, that led Israel through, uh, through the wilderness there. And they would, they would celebrate the, that pillar of fire and how God was faithful to their ancestors in the wilderness. And at this very moment, when the, the, when the light is lifted into the sky, 
Jesus stands up and he says the following. He reads from John 8, 12. So if we can put that up, he says this. Lights are going up from these great uh, lanterns into the sky. And Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Of course, it's, he's thinking back to the, the pillar in the wilderness. Jesus is saying, I'm who you should follow in this world. Jesus, I mean, he knows how to capitalize on a moment, doesn't he? Like, he, he, really, he, really, he really does. He, he has a captive audience. He's got this powerful religious ceremony. These giant gas lanterns are, are lifted into the sky, and he says, I'm the pillar of light that your ancestors followed, that led them to salvation. That's how you should think about me. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. That's a bold claim. It's a strong claim. It's a clear claim. And this is what I want you to see. This is all happening in, in chapter 8, and it's leading smack dab to the healing of this blind man in chapter 9. And it's all pointing to the same thing. And, and, and Let me try to make this clear. It's all pointing to the same thing. Eyes that saw only darkness are now going to see the light of Jesus, right? He is the light of the world. Now, if you're, if you're following along and you have one of those red-letter Bibles where everything Jesus says is, is in red letters, what you're going to notice is that there's a sea of red letters between where Jesus says, I am the light of the world, and where he heals this blind man. Jesus is saying a lot of stuff. He, he's up front. He's having a lot of dialogue with the crowd there in John. Um, and, and basically, he's saying things like, uh, the truth will set you free. If you could see the light, that I am the Messiah. And the Jews keep saying, uh, yeah, but, but Abraham, what about Abraham? Abraham this and Abraham that. Are you greater than Abraham? Until Jesus finally says to them, before Abraham was, I am. And uh, that's quite a claim. He's saying he was before Abraham. How could that be? And not only that, he's saying, I am, which is that, that claim to divinity that we have through Scripture and for those in the audience, that was a bridge too far. It was heresy. Jesus had made some claims uh, that they just couldn't stand. And, and so let me read you. I'm gonna, we're going to read the last two verses in chapter 8 so that we'll know what's, what's happening as we begin chapter 9. So the last two verses in chapter 8, it's 8, 58, and 59, if we can put those up. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And it says, so they picked up stones to throw at him, and Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So, so recap time, just a little bit. Let's, let's all be on the same page here. Jesus comes to the festival of booths, right? Everyone's outside in their tents, uh, and the Pharisees still want to kill Jesus. But Jesus disregards that. He gets up into the temple and begins to preach, and he boldly proclaims the gospel. He tells one group of people, if you believe in me, out of your heart, rivers of living water will flow. That's what he tells one group of people. He tells another group of people, I am the light of the world. Follow me. He says, before Abraham was, I am. So he's made these, these great claims. And now they're trying to stone Jesus for what he said. And, and Scripture kind of indicates that maybe Jesus is running for his life, that, he, that he, he withdraws from the temple. Scripture says he hides himself and goes out. And that's exactly where we begin our reading for today. When Jesus heals this blind man, he is leaving the temple, being chased apparently by people with stones for claiming that he is the light of the world. Context 
is an awesome thing, isn't it? Like to know where you're reading things happen within the greater story. And so with all this idea that Jesus is, is fleeing the temple for the things that he said, John 9.1 says this. As he passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. So why is Jesus passing by? Oh, yeah, he's running from the stoning. And as Jesus and his disciples are fleeing from the temple, they just happened to notice a man who was there, blind from birth, people with disabilities hanging around the temple in hopes of finding mercy from Jews who were trying to make peace with their God. It, it makes sense. It still happens in these days. Now, let's say this. that Back in those days, blindness was more of a, a common ailment than it is now. It, there, were, there were more people born blind. And it has to do, in a, in, in a lot of ways, from infections that babies would get in their eyes uh, from the mother's birth canal. And the mother would have some sort of a disease, and the baby would pass through the birth canal, and oftentimes that disease would be transferred into a baby's eyes, and those babies would be born blind. Nowadays, uh, when babies are born, the moment they're born, they, the doctors rub a little gel in the, in the eyes. My wife told me it was erythromycin, uh, and she's almost a nurse, so everything she says is true. And uh, so we have fewer people born blind now. But back then, there were, there were a lot of people born blind. And in, in verse 2, uh, the, the disciples are fleeing the temple with Jesus. And as Jesus notices this man who's born blind, the disciples ask Jesus, they say, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And we can follow this, the disciples' logic to be this, basically. Uh, this was the theology of the day. That suffering and pain was always the result of your sin. Always, always, always. It's kind, of the, it's kind of the flip side of the health and wealth theology. And those of you who know what the health and wealth is, you see in health and wealth theology that, that when you're obedient to the Word of God, you're always rich and healthy and safe. Therefore, if you're not rich, healthy, and safe, it must mean that you were not obedient to the Word of God keeping you from being rich, healthy, and safe. Uh, let me say this, that I believe that to be a, a total lie from the pit of hell. And uh, let me say this, go back uh, even last week, and we see that when the disciples were following Jesus, they came upon storms. They weren't rich, they weren't, they weren't healthy, they weren't safe, they were, danger, they were in danger, they were wet, and they were tired, and they were following Jesus. Uh, scripture says that Job is, is this righteous man, and yet suffering came upon him. Being faithful to God does not spare you from suffering. It, it never has. Sometimes it's God's will for us to suffer. Sometimes great blessings are found in our suffering. Was this man blind because of his sin? That was the assumption of the day except for the fact that this man was born blind. This makes our theology a little bit more tricky if you think about it. Did this man sin before he was born? And I will tell you that there is such a thing as a line of theology called prenatal iniquity where people have come up with this idea that, yes, somehow that baby in the womb must have sinned. As reformers, we believe that, you know, men, all people have a sin nature. It comes from Adam. But we're not saying that they're sinning in the womb necessarily. And, and because they wrestle to kind of figure out this kind of prenatal sin issue, they, they begin to look elsewhere for why this man or, or people who were born with birth defects might be uh, so stricken. 
And they came to Exodus 20, verse 5. And if we could put that up, 5 and 6, we're going to read it together. It says this. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity uh, of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commands. So uh, after reading this, they figured that, that, that sometimes people who are suffering are not suffering because of their own sins, but rather they're suffering because of the sins of their ancestors. And there was some logic. See, that's what the disciples are trying to get at. And, and let me be as clear as I can here. I don't think that's what Exodus 20 verse 5 is saying. I don't think it's saying sometimes uh, when kids are born blind, it's a result of their grandfather being a bad person I, uh, and that somehow God is now punishing their grandchild. I do not believe Scripture teaches that. I think Exodus 20 is, is about entire generations of people living in a land. If you look at it, it's, it's never singular there. It's talking about fathers, plural. It's talking about children, plural. It's talking about generations. I think it's saying something like uh, all, of us who are, all of us who are in this generation, if we neglect God, it, there's going to be real repercussions on our children and in their generations to come. You see this pattern in the book of Judges. You see entire generations turning for God or from God, and you see how that affects their kids. I want to look at, at one more scripture in order to understand this idea of generational sin and what we really think it means. Uh, look with me at Ezekiel. We're going to be in the 18th chapter, verses 1 and 2. And here's what it says. It, it's an interesting verse. It says this. The word of the Lord came to me. What do you mean by repeating this proverb concerning the land of Israel? The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. So this is the prophet Ezekiel. And what happens is he's being questioned by the word of the Lord. And the word of the Lord comes to him and he's talking about generational sin. And he basically asks him about this parable. He basically says, Ezekiel, what is this parable that's in Israel right now that goes like this? The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth have gone sour. And so you can see it's pointing to the fact that, that somehow the sins of the fathers are passed down to the children. And the word of God is asking Ezekiel, what is this all about? Let's keep going. Ezekiel 18, 3 through 4. This is what the Lord tells to Ezekiel about this parable that's in, in, in Israel at the time. He says, as I live, declares the Lord, this proverb shall no more be used by you in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. So the word of the Lord tells Ezekiel, stop using this parable. It's not helpful. Both the father's soul and the son's soul belongs to me. The soul of the one who sins shall die. In other words, I don't punish grandchildren for their grandfather's sins. Uh, the, the word of the Lord goes on to say in Ezekiel, it, it's the whole chapter 18 is full of this. It says, if a, if a man is righteous and he does what is just in the sight of the Lord, uh, he shall surely, surely live, thus saith the Lord. And if a father, if, he, if that man fathers a son who's violent, and that son shall surely die, and the blood shall be upon himself. And so we see this working all the way through this. But I, I guess the disciples missed this verse. I guess they didn't understand this part of Ezekiel because they're now asking Jesus about this very issue. Rabbi, 
Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? Uh, Jesus answers the disciples in John 9, 3. This is what he says. He says, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. In other words, this man's not born blind because of his sin. This man is born blind so that the works of God might be displayed in him. What are these works of God? The works of God that Jesus keeps talking about is this miraculous healing which is about to happen. Uh, why was this man born blind? So that Jesus could miraculously heal him. And why did Jesus want to heal this man? What was, what was Jesus' motivation for wanting to heal this man? Well, compassion, I'm sure. I mean, Jesus is, is, is very compassionate. But why is Jesus running out of the temple? Why, why is he being chased? Why are people wanting to throw stones at him now? Because he said he was the light of the world. Because he told them that the truth that he's speaking to them would set them free. And before, because he said before Abraham was, I am. And now all of a sudden he's going to show people just who he is. What better way to show that Jesus is the light of the world than to give light to a blind man? What better way to show that the truth will set you free than, dis than to display truth through power? What better way to show people that you are the great I am than to do something impossible? Not improbable, but impossible. Jesus, he even makes the connection for us. If we were to read verse 5 out of chapter 9 together, Jesus says this, As long as I am in the world, uh, I am the light of the world. That's the same claim that the crowds want to throw rocks at him for. And so now he's going to prove it in verse 6. Uh, he says, uh, Scripture says that he spits on the ground and he makes mud with the saliva. And he anoints the man's eyes with the mud. And he tells the man to go wash in the pool of Siloam. And the man went and washed and he, he came back seeing. <laughs> A man who's never seen before in his life. Now for the first time sees because of the light of the world. Now, this is the sixth miracle of Jesus in the Gospel of John. So let's conclude by asking a couple of questions. First, uh, we want to ask, what was the sign? And secondly, we want to ask, what did the sign point to? The sign was simple. Immediately after an attempted stoning for claiming to be the light of the world, and, and that I am who was before Abraham, Jesus passes by a blind man who had been blind from birth and restores the man's sight, proving that words are easy, but miracles are impossible except for God. What does the sign point to? It points to the fact that Jesus is exactly who he says he is. He is the great I am. He is the light of the world. Who else can restore sight to the blind? Restoring sight to a blind man by spitting on dirt isn't just improbable, it's impossible. Listen, you can spit on dirt, you can find someone who's blind, you can spit on dirt and rub it into a blind man's eyes a million times. And how many times is that guy going to gain his sight? Zero. Zero times. The miracles of Jesus are not simply improbable, they're impossible 
The only explanation for a man who can walk on water, for a man who can change water into wine, for a man who restores sight to the blind is that he is who he says he is, the very Son of God. What does this mean for us? It means this, that the only way for you to find peace with God is for you to discover the light of the world, Christ Jesus. And the only way this happens is when Jesus opens your eyes. Friends, if you believe that Jesus is Lord, if you believe that he is the Son of God, who came into this world and who died for your sins, it's because Jesus has given you eyes to see. If your eyes have been opened today by the hearing of the word, praise God for the compassion that Jesus has and for the demonstration that he is who he says he is. Uh, let us know. Come, come to us. Let us know so we can pray with you and celebrate that with you. The miracle of the healing of the blind man points us to the need to have Jesus open our eyes and see that he is the light of the world. Praise be to Jesus. That is the point of our sermons always, to lift high the name of Jesus and to find hope in him. I hope you found that today. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you having read of the way in which you gave testimony to, to who Jesus was by these miraculous signs. God, we know, we know miracles are rare. So that's why we celebrate all the more, singing them in Jesus' life. They are testimony of who he is. And we thank you that we can see them, that we have the word of God recorded for us, God, and we can celebrate and worship Jesus in hearing these things. Um, God, may you do a work in us as you continue to open our eyes and you continue to be uh, the light in our world. Be with our world now, God, as they struggle with a dark time. Christ, may you continue to be that light that heals and restores. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, we have been uh, the church gathered. Now go and be the church scattered. And as you, do, as you do, take with you the love of God, the grace of Christ Jesus, his son, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit until we meet again. Amen. Thank <music> you.